Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. Good on, mate. Great to be along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, a story that, uh, well, I have to say is, uh, you know, and obviously, you know, it's my job to build up hype and excitement about every single story that I tell on this podcast, but this one really is a cut above the rest. This is one of my uh, one of my favourite stories from history, uh, one of the most unsung and uh, and uh, sort of unknown heroes of the modern era, and I'm very, it's, a, it's a great privilege this week to be able to st- share the story of Georg Elsa and his plot to kill Hitler, because this bloke deserves every second of the limelight that he gets. The Germans these days, obviously, enormously ashamed of this period in their history, and they are not a people who particularly are particularly keen to adulate, uh, you know, their own heroes at the time. But you know, it's fair to say that amongst all of the 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 terrible evil that was being wrought by German the German people at this time, they did have other. There were people within Germany who were doing their best to, uh, you know, to fight against that tide, and Georg Elsa was one of the one of the people who led that charge. So I'm very, very proud to present the story of Georg Elsa this week. Let's get stuck into it. As I said, his name is not one that is known to many. Even those who were interested in the Second World War may have may have escaped your notice. Uh, but this bloke, I will tell you this, he came within. 13 minutes of altering the course of world history. His assassination attempt was so close to success, it beggars belief. And, you know, he, he is at least somewhat, you know, I don't want to say he's famous for it, but he, he is at least known for, for trying to assassinate Hitler right after the outbreak of the Second World War. And as I've said, he is one of the biggest German heroes to emerge uh, from that dark period of, of German history that is the Third Reich. So let's get stuck into it and have a chat about exactly what was going on with this bloke, Georg Elsa. He's born in Württemberg on the 4th of January 1903. His, his name is actually Johann Georg Elsa, but he goes by Georg for, for whatever reason. Now, unfortunately, he didn't have a particularly great childhood. His parents, they both worked their hands to the bone, and so poor old Georg was actually left to look after his, his five younger brothers and sisters while uh, growing up in Königsbronn. Now, this is always the way with older siblings. I'm sure that, you know, if you're an older sibling yourself, you know exactly how this works. It's absolute rubbish. It's absolute rubbish. When mum caught me holding a lit match next to my brother's bare ass when he was trying to squeeze out a fart, it wasn't his fault at all. It was my fault. I got a bollocking for it, but my idiot brother didn't cop anything at all because for some reason, again, it's my fault that he'd been part of it and I should have known better or something. So Gail very much in the same position, having to, you know, look after all of his uh, his younger brothers and sisters, keep them all out of trouble. Anyway, on top of this massive burden of being the eldest child, he also had to deal with the, the fact that he, his old man was a boozer and would often come often come home pissed as a chook, uh, which can't have been very much fun for the young man. And uh, at the age of 14, uh, he starts to work for his dad here in his timber business, but, uh, but got sick of it pretty bloody quickly and uh, ended up as an apprentice to a woodworker working down uh, on Lake Constance near the Swiss border. Now, what's very interesting about this bloke's career is that, you know, as unremarkable as some of his jobs are, they end up coming together in this sort of slumdog millionaire type way when it comes to the assassination attempt. And the first piece of this puzzle is woodworking. So, you know, we'll leave that we'll leave that aside for one moment and talk about his, uh, you know, his, his job as a woodworker. He, he works as a chippy, a cabinet maker for a couple of years. But in 1925, there's a real lack of work. The German economy is in the poop, in the toilet. 
And uh, as a result, you know, he's one of the many people who has to who has to pick up, uh, pack up his bags, and, and move somewhere else looking for work. And he does so, moving uh, uh, from uh, Friedrichshaven to Konstanz to uh, to work in a clock factory. And this is the second piece of our Slumdog Murder Man puzzle here, because he becomes more and more familiar with clockwork during his time at the factory. So he's already an accomplished woodworker, and now he knows his way around clockwork as well. Unfortunately, this job as a clockmaker doesn't last either. And after some, uh, you know, after some time, poor old Gail, he's out in his ass again, unemployed. He's out of work uh, when the uh, clock factory actually burnt down. The, the business was failing, and the owner uh, couldn't find a buyer. And the next thing you know, it's a pile of smoking ashes. Highly suspicious, I would say. Highly suspicious. In any case, Georg, he gets back to his old job as a carpenter. And by 1930, he's, uh, he's dovetailed nicely with clocks and woodwork. And he's working in Switzerland, making the wood housing for wall clocks. So he's really brought these two proficiencies together very neatly indeed. But in 1932, trouble is brewing for him personally as he has to move home and live with his parents again. The reason for this is his daddy's being a real bastard. He's hitting the bottle far too hard and too often, and uh, and his mum has just had enough of it. You know, he's belting her around as well, and, and generally just being just being a miserable bastard. Very very unfortunate. And as a result, Georg, absolute you know, top bloke here, he comes back to try to settle things down a bit between them, and and generally speaking, does a bang up job. He settles things down. He gets his dad back on track. You know, tips out all of his uh, all of his booze, and and you know, smashes all his bottles up, and says, "Get back to work, you old bastard, and stop hitting me mum." So while he's there, he's trying to find find work as well, obviously, back in Königsplan. Uh, he does carpentry and odd jobs here and there, and he takes up hiking and also starts playing the zither, of all things, that weird sort of guitar-like musical instrument. Anyway, in 1936, so by this stage, uh, you know, sort of from a, from a broader perspective of, of, of German history, the Nazis are well and truly in, in power here throughout, the, you know, throughout, throughout Germany after seizing power in 1933, establishing themselves very, very securely in 1936, you know, all, firing on all cylinders, Hitler and his bastard mates are. Uh, but for Georg personally, he, he snags a job at the Waldenmeyer Armament Factory in a nearby town, Heidenheim, and, uh, and this is piece number three of our puzzle. Because while he's working at this Nazi-controlled armament factory, Georg basically has free run of the place and was able to get his hands on stuff like detonators, powder and fuses. Now, at this stage, he's already working alongside some of the, you know, the forced labour, the slaves that the Nazis have, uh, have already started to... Uh, these processes already got these wheels in motion. A lot of political prisoners that he's working with, and he's sympathetic towards them. But uh, obviously, doesn't really take any any concrete action while working in this factory. But this final piece of the puzzle, his work with armaments and explosives and detonators and all that sort of stuff, this is the this is the, the critical piece here, as we'll find out as we move on towards 1939 and the outbreak of the Second World War. So, with the stage set, with all of Georg's, uh, you know, sort of. Uh, professional expertises are well and truly established now. We can talk about his motive. Why did this very ordinary bloke decide that he wanted to have a, you know, a red-hot go in altering the course of world history by killing Hitler? There is every indication that, uh, that Georg absolutely hated the bloke from the get-go. Uh, when in crowds and at, you know, at, at events that were run by the Nazis, uh, Georg refused to do the usual salute. He didn't vote for the for the Nazis in elections, and he refused uh, to listen to to Hitler spout all of his his hateful rubbish on the radio as well. Now, there's disagreement uh, amongst historians over how extreme his his views were here. Officially, actually, he was a member of a communist organization called the Roter Frontkampfverbund, 
but it seemed like he didn't really go to any meetings or anything and may have just joined it because his mates were part of it as well, especially given that the Auto von Kampferbund was, was quite a violent organisation by some accounts and, and used to, you know, sort of go and bash people up and whatever else. And Gao was very much not into that sort of thing. So he may not really have been, uh, you know, too involved with that group and, and that may have just sort of been a sort of footnote to his overall view here. However, there is evidence from his correspondence as well as blokes you know, who knew him at the time that he did want to do something uh, about this whole Hitler situation, which may have even you know, gone all the way up to killing him, assassinating him, to, to prevent you know, Hitler's very aggressive foreign policy and all of his, his murderous campaigns. Anyway, after the whole thing concluded and after we get a much clearer picture of, uh, of uh, you know, Georg's sort of view on the whole situation. He did it for one reason. He could see that Hitler was driving Germany towards war, and he could see that history was going to repeat itself and a second enormous war was going to take place if, if Hitler was left to do what he was you know, wanting to do. And so Georg took action to prevent the war. That's why he did what he did. It's interesting because he wasn't even that against Nazism. He he just wanted to remove the senior leadership, namely, namely Hitler, Goering, and Goebbels, because he do, he believed that they were destroying Germany and that their you know their warmongering would be the downfall of the country. And so that he decided he decided then that the best way to avoid an all-out war was to kill the blokes in charge. And and hopefully then he thought this would mean a more moderate approach uh, to you know to Nazism uh, by would be taken by whoever uh, succeeded them. And the warmongering would stop. We, and, you know, that's, that, that was his hope in any case. So in 1938, Georg is sick to death of all, all of this Nazi rubbish, uh, you know, warmongering, going around, being very aggressive, whatever else. And uh, all of the, you know, the provocative stuff that Hitler is getting up to with the Anschluss and, and the Sudeten crisis and, you know, and the annexation of territories and whatever else. So he decides to get his ass into gear and finally make a move on this assassination plan that has been kicking around in his head for a couple of years. And he kicks things off like this. Every year, on the 8th of November, Hitler and the rest of the Nazi top brass would go to the Bürgerbraukeller in Munich to commemorate the anniversary of the Beer Hall Putsch in 1923. The Beer Hall Putsch was a Nazi-led and thankfully failed attempt at a violent overthrow of the government in Bavaria. Now, given this commemoration had a such a high concentration of Nazi leadership, Georg reckons that, reckons that it's his best shot to kill as many of them as possible in one go. All of the the, the big the big knobs of the Nazi Party are going to be there uh, to commemorate this this event that they're sort of trying to blow up as being this you know massive turning point in world history, the the Beer Hall Putsch. And so, as a result, it's this sort of critical mass of of, of the big uh, the top brass and hit and uh, you know Hitler and the rest of his mates. And so, so Georg reckons this is his time to strike. So with that decided, he, just, he starts his recon. He jumps on a train on the 8th of November 1938 and goes to the Bürgerbräukeller, entering later on in the evening once the whole, you know, the, the, this big commemoration event has, has finished. And after casing the joint, he decides that the best thing to do would be to build a time bomb and hide it inside the wooden pillar behind where the speeches were given. He gets a good look at this sort of dais where Hitler was standing, scopes out the rest of the room, sees there's this pillar, and realises that he can probably plant a bomb inside it that will explode, you know, in sorry, the next year when Hitler stands in the same place, delivers another speech, and obviously, you know, hopefully meets his maker at that stage. And now... This is where we see all of the slumdog millionaire you know, pieces of the puzzle really come together. He needs woodwork, because he has to work with a wooden pillar. He needs woodwork, clockwork, and bomb work, I guess. Anyway, 
his plan starts to well and truly take shape at this stage now that he's got an idea of how exactly it's going to work. So he goes back to work at the armament factory and now starts nicking stuff like it's going out of style. He blags detonators, powder, all sorts of stuff and starts doing research into how to construct a bomb. So while he's going to his, you know, his nine to five job at the factory, he is probably not nine to five to be honest, he's probably working a lot harder than that. But anyway, he's, he's stealing stuff obviously that he's going to be able to use to, to build a bomb. So... He has to make another change of jobs during the process. He actually has a fight with his supervisor at the factory, but pivots masterfully and starts working at a quarry. Now, this means even after having been, uh, you know, even after he's not working at this armaments factory anymore, he still has access to explosives because at the quarry, they're using detonators and, and, and explosives to blow up rocks, you know, that they can then mine for, for, for whatever reason. So this is very important because he, at his time after the, at the quarry, he steals over a hundred blasting cartridges and more than 120 detonators, way, way more than you'd need for one bomb. But all the same, you know, you know be, be prepared is, uh, is, is what he's doing here. He goes back to Munich in April 1939 to take some photos of the place, and with the dimensions of the pillar secured, he starts to do his drawings and stuff. He tells all of his mates that he's working on an invention when they see the schematics, but he doesn't tell them too much more. And there's a reason for this, as we'll come to. And in July, he builds a couple of test bombs to, and heads out to an orchard that his parents own to test them. No worries. Uh, you know, he digs out a couple of, of holes in the trees, plants the bombs in there, and uh, and blows the trees to bits. So he's stoked because, the you know, the bombs are obviously working as intended. So happy with the way that everything is going, he moves to Munich on the 5th of August. And this is where the plan really starts to kick into top gear. Once Gaug arrives in Munich, he rents a room using his real name, which is pretty ballsy, and becomes a regular at the Burgerpark Keller, eating his dinner there uh, very often indeed, you know, as often as he can get away with, essentially. Now, what he'd do after eating is he would sneak into the adjoining hall where the speech was going to be held, and, uh, and once, you know, once more or less uh, everyone had gone for the night, he would start work. So after having his dinner, he'd get there kind of late, and then he'd go off, sidle off, trying to hide somewhere, and then once everyone had gone and the place had closed up, he would sneak into this hall where the speech was going to be given, and uh, more or less every other night between August and October he did this, and he'd be there in the hall working away until about 2 or 3 in the morning. And it looked like this. He'd be at the back of the stage behind the pillar near, you know, near the dais, the podium where Hitler was going to stand, with a little torch covered by a blue hanky that he'd hold in his mouth. And he'd be there for hours, hollowing as quietly as he could, hollowing out a cavity in the brickwork of the pillar that was encased by wood. The pillar, as I say, encased by wood, which meant that using his woodworking skills, he was able to install a little secret door to disguise the hole that led to the brickwork. And then obviously, you know, people wouldn't realise there was this great big, you know, missing cavity that, uh, that was being uh, taken away every night. So he'd hide all the debris from his work inside his suitcase, and then he'd have a quick snooze in a storeroom as the place was locked until the morning. And uh, then he'd get up and, and sneak out once the place was sort of unlocked, you know, without being seen. And this is what he got up to at night. During the day, however, is a different matter entirely. He spent the day working on the bomb itself, carefully buying all the different components that he needed, uh, you know, on top of the ones that he'd stolen from shops over town. His knowledge of clockwork enabled him to build the device with a timer, and he even had some, start, uh, some parts left over from when he was working at the clock factory itself. So at the beginning of November, he has finally built himself a bomb. He's put together all the explosives, all of the clockwork, and the cavity is also finished with that panel in front of it, hiding it, uh, you know, disguising, disguising the hole there with this little secret door. On the 1st and the 2nd of November, 
Georg sneaks in once more to the Burgerbrau Keller and installs the explosive part of the bomb inside the pillar. He came back on the 4th and the 5th to install the clockwork timer, which meant, this is quite cool, actually had to, to, get into the, uh, to get into the hall itself, it was closed for the evening because there was a dance party on it. He had to buy a ticket to the dance party. You know, imagine that. Everyone's bloody, you know, having a great time, dancing around, you know, making out in the corner, bumping and grinding, and he's there like a nerd checking the news on his phone, waiting for the, thing to, waiting for the whole thing to finish so he can, uh, you know, sneak back behind the pillar and, uh, and install his clockwork. Anyway, he does one final check on the 6th, and sets the timing mechanism for 20 past 9 on the 8th of November. Hitler's speech was scheduled for half past 8 and would go on for two hours. Two hours! You thought school assembly was bad, and uh, so it would obviously you know, go off right in the middle of the speech. Brilliant, perfect. With everything ready and set, it's time for Georg to get out of town, which he does at a rather leisurely pace, it has to be said. Even though you know the enormous amount of heat that's going to be on him in just a couple of days, he waits until the next morning to leave Munich, planning to head to Switzerland, but stops on the way, however, in Friedrichshaven at a barber shop to get a shave and then cruises on to Constance, really taking his time. And this is where, as we'll see, it costs him very, very dearly. Slow and steady did not win this race. Anyway, we'll move away from Georg now and focus instead on the Keller and, 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 and exactly what happened there. Now, obviously, in, uh, nine, in November 1939, the, se- the Second World War is well and truly underway technically at least, is actually a period of the war that's referred to as the phony war, as absolutely nothing was going on in terms of fighting. After the Nazi invasion of Poland in September and, and their, their capitulation just five weeks later, uh, nothing much really happened until May 1940 when the Nazis attacked France and the Benelux countries. So anyway, despite the lack of fighting, Hitler is still, uh, you know, he's busy as anything, orchestrating the Nazis' next move and preparing for the oncoming conflicts. Now, as a result, he actually reckons he's, uh, he's just too flat out to get to, the, to get to Munich for the commemoration at the Burgerbrau Keller and actually had cancelled his appearance. But after thinking about it and after, you know, some of his advisors saying, nah, mate, listen, you've really got to go, it's that important, he changes his mind. He didn't want to miss the anniversary celebrations for the Beer Hall Putsch as it was too big an event on the Nazi calendar for him to kind of bail from, you know. So he heads down there with his entourage and he hangs out in his old stomping ground for a bit because he used to live there when he was in his 20s. He was this sort of indolent uh, layabout, essentially, uh, living in Munich uh, for a while. But, uh, uh, you know, he goes back, he's having a good time. He, you know, he's, he's wandering around Munich and, and enjoying himself. Uh, and then before the event starts, actually, he starts to get these reports coming in saying there's going to be a huge, thick fog that night. Now, this is a problem. This is a problem for Hitler as he was going to fly back to Berlin in the morning and it might not actually be be possible for him if the fog sticks around. So as a result, he changes his plans. He decides instead instead of flying, obviously you can't fly if the planes are grounded, he's instead going to take a private train instead. Now, in order to accommodate for that, Hitler has to shorten the length of his speech, which, you know, he's obviously presumably pissed off about because the one thing that this bloke loved to do, and admittedly the one thing that he was very good at, was talking. But anyway, he agrees to cut it down from two hours to just one. So still way too long for any speech of any kind, mind you, but we're cutting it very fine here because, as you remember, the bomb is going off at 20 past nine. But no worries, he still should be there when it explodes because, again, he's going to start at half past eight. So... As the, as the evening draws on and the departure time for the train was, uh, was, was sort of fixed, it actually gets brought forward to half past nine in order to get him back to Berlin in time. And so they have to adjust the schedule again. Instead of taking to the stage at half past eight as planned, Hitler instead begins his speech at eight o'clock and things really aren't looking good, uh, you know, vis-a-vis the whole bomb situation. But think of this. Think of this. 
Hitler is there, 8 o'clock, he goes up, thunderous applause, he stands up, starts spewing out this hateful nonsense. Only a couple of metres away from this deadly explosive and around him are people like Josef Goebbels, Heinrich Himmler, Rudolf Hess and other many high-ranking Nazi pricks and all of them are minutes away from death. And that's not to mention the 3,000 or so fanatically loyal party insiders who are packed into this hall to listen to this maniac speak. Hitler's fiery, passionate speech goes on and on and on. Hitler's ability to, to give speeches has been described as more or less the one thing that he was, the only thing really that he was actually very good at. But sure enough, and unfortunately, he wraps it up and leaves the Keller at seven minutes past nine. Seven minutes past nine. Hitler, Goebbels, Hess, and the rest of these bastards leave the building and head to the train station. And sure enough, just 13 minutes later, 20 past nine on the nose, the bomb explodes just as Georg had planned, and the explosion is huge. It essentially brings down the building, which is still chock full of people. Seven of them die immediately and over 60 of them are injured. But as the stage had been emptied and as people are sort of making their way out, none of the bomb's original targets are hurt. And that's because, of course, they're boarding this private train, getting ready to whiz back to Berlin. They're not even in the building. But ultimately, Georg's attempt to assassinate Hitler is a failure because of a thick fog and an early train. A tragedy. Just imagine what would have happened if things had gone differently that night. Anyway, what happened after this is also very interesting, so let's explore that. What happened here? Hitler obviously didn't find out about the bombing until much later on. He's enjoying his, you know, his train ride back towards Berlin until he arrives in Nuremberg, where the, where the news reaches him. Now, his first comment after having discovered just how close to death he was, his first comment uh, is to say, a man has to be lucky. And I'll tell you what, this bastard was lucky, if nothing else. But as you might expect, he's quick to seek an angle for propaganda, and he decides that it was divine intervention that had saved him. Now, the propaganda angle continues, as we'll see, as Hitler looks for every possible way to spin this event for the maximum political benefit. So what's happened to our mate Georg by now, while Hitler is finding out about this news and doing his political planning? What's happened to Georg? As I said before, he's making his cruisy way to the Swiss border near Constance, uh, and at about at about quarter to nine on the 8th, so 35 minutes before the bomb goes off, he stopped about 25 metres away from the border fence by some German guards. Now, this was not the smartest move from Georg there, you know, trying to cross the border where there was a fence, because obviously that's a bit more suspicious than just going to a checkpoint. But he had his reasons for not wanting to go to a checkpoint, as we'll discuss right now. Because for all, you know... Eventually, he is taken to a checkpoint and ordered to empty his pockets. But you know, for all the good work that he did with the assassination plot, and all for all the smart stuff that he did in making a bomb, he stuffed this part up pretty bloody badly. Did Georg? Because when he empties his pockets for the guards, they find, if you'll believe it, all of his notes, all of his sketches, all of the documents that he had, the plans and everything for the bomb that he'd made. He had all of this evidence in his pockets as well as stuff like firing pins and wire cutters and a postcard depicting the interior of the Keller. Now, obviously, the news of the bombing is going to take a while to get to Constance, and it hasn't even happened at this stage when he was captured. But now, nonetheless, Georg is hauled off to the Gestapo, given that he had all this explosive paraphernalia in his pockets. Now, during his interrogation, by about 11 o'clock at night here, news of the Keller explosion reaches his captors, 
and they start to ask him some very sharp questions indeed. Georg is sent off to Munich to be investigated by the Gestapo that uh, that are over there. And when Georg emerges as a prime suspect because of all this evidence that he was trying to carry across the border, his family and friends back in Königsbrunn are rounded up for questioning as well. Now, the evidence against Georg is super damning. He didn't do such a good job of hiding his tracks, it has to be said. Firstly, some fragments of the clockwork left at the scene of the bombing still have a readable maker's mark on them, and it shows that they were made in the factory that he used to work in. Secondly, one of the blokes that he bought some materials off of in Munich is able to identify him, mostly based on his, on his Swabian accent. Thirdly, one of the waitresses at the Burgerpile Keller recognises Georg as the quiet, weird bloke who only ever you know, came in very late and often only ordered one drink. And fourthly, one of the Gestapo blokes gets Georg to roll up his trousers and show off his knees, which have bad bruises on them from all the kneeling he'd done while working on the, uh, on the pillar. Pretty bloody clever thing to have done. You're there in the interrogation chamber, you know, slamming all this evidence in his, fra- uh, in, his, uh, you know, in, in his face and then going, mate, drop your drawers, I want to have a look at your knees. And that was the final piece of the puzzle there. Now, on the 15th of November, Georg finally confesses to the plot and signs a document explaining how he did it and why he did it. And obviously, this is after, you know, getting the crap beaten out of him as well, with Himmler himself getting stuck into this torture as well, apparently. But this confession is not enough for the Gestapo, however, who are after something slightly different from Georg, and so he's moved to their headquarters in Berlin. His family is also dragged off to Berlin as well, and it's from them that we learn what happened to Georg at the time. Now, as you can imagine, he wasn't treated with much kindness while with the Gestapo. He was beaten black and blue, this poor bloke. He was tortured within an inch of his life as they tried to extract the confession that they wanted from him. Himmler himself is said to have personally interrogated Paul Georg because the, Nazi have a, the Nazis have a very, very clear goal in mind when interrogating him. What they want, because what's happening here, during this interrogation, time and time again, uh, Georg is repeating the same thing over and over again. He is he, he's repeating the same reason as to his, what his motive was. And, and the, the most famous quote to emerge from this time was, Ich habe den Krieg verhindern wollen, or in other words, in English words, <laughs> I wanted to prevent the war. He lays out his thinking to these bastards while saying that he saw, by saying that the, he saw the path of destruction that Hitler was leading Germany down, and he wanted to stop it from happening. In, jo- in, in, in Georg's mind, removing Hitler and all of these, you know, th- these other saber-rattling maniacs from at the top of the, the food chain here would have resulted in a more moderate leadership and maybe diffused the oncoming hostilities. He said that for his whole life, Hitler has, mean the down- has meant the downfall of Germany, and he wasn't even that opposed to national socialism, just the warmongering ways of the people in charge. But again, this isn't accepted by the Gestapo, and it's not accepted by Hitler. I said that before that Hitler was looking for a propaganda angle, and this is what is going on here. The idea, to Hitler, the idea that a homegrown, red-blooded German could become a rebel and do something like, you know, something as audacious and effective as what Georg had done was too much for Hitler to bear. He, he wouldn't believe it. He wasn't going to stand for it. He wasn't going to stand for the idea that this plot had come from within and that a German would act this way against him. And as a result, he specifically instructs the Gestapo to admit, or to get Georg to admit to working for a foreign power, and namely the British. Hitler is determined to out, you know, the truth be damned, Hitler is determined to out Georg as a, as a British spy and doesn't care what it takes to get, to get Georg to admit to this. The thing is, he won't. He won't admit it to it. He explains over and over again how he did it and why he did it. And he even draws the bomb again, the, the, goes through the plans again, 
over and over to decide that he, uh, he, he, you know, designed it himself. And this is where we finally get the explanation for why he was caught at the border with all that evidence. Because you're probably thinking, Georg, mate, why didn't you just chuck your briefcase in the river, get rid of all the evidence, scoot over across to Switzerland, and that's going to be the end of thing and end of things for you there. I will tell you now that this bloke is a dead set hero. The reason that he had all of the schematics, all of the plans, all of the bits and pieces, all of the evidence in his briefcase in his pockets there when he was caught was because his plan was to mail back all of this evidence to the German authorities once he was safe in Switzerland in order to prove that he acted alone. Would you believe it? He was so determined that no one else was to take the blame for what he did. He didn't want anyone else to be scapegoated, right? And any anyone else to be to be framed or, or used as a as a, a you know as a whipping boy for what had happened, uh, you know what he'd done. That he he went to enormous lengths to have evidence to prove that it was him once he was once he was safe. He even rebuilt the bomb at the request of the Gestapo to prove that he did it by himself and to prove, right, that no one else was in, in involved. He impressed he actually impressed all the people that he you know that all of his, his captors in, his interrogators who actually updated some of their explosive manuals and techniques based on what, on the stuff that uh, that Gale had done. But this hero was so determined to ensure that no one else copped the blame uh, for his plot, that he ruined himself by being caught with all the evidence. He could have destroyed it, but he didn't, he didn't do it. He didn't, he didn't get rid of this evidence and save his own skin because he was worried that if he removed all the evidence, the Nazis would just pin it on someone else and someone else would have to suffer for his crime. Anyway, the Gestapo don't want to hear any of this. Hitler is saying, no, no, not good enough. He's a spy. Make him say he's a spy. I don't care what else. He's a spy. They won't hear anything. You know, they won't hear anything that, that contravenes the orders they've been given. And so poor Georg, he is held and tortured and tortured and tortured until finally he breaks and he confesses for having worked for the British Intelligence Service, which is patently untrue. There is not a scrap of historical evidence to suggest that this is the case. And he, he just eventually has to give in and say what they want to hear. The thing is, the ridiculous thing is that Hitler really believed it. Hitler actually really believed that it was true because he point-blank refused to, the, to believe that a, a working-class, real German would act against him in this way. And he chucked the, uh, the Gestapo's report on Georg, which clearly said that he had acted alone. He chucked it in the bin and ignored it completely. But this meant that once that, uh, once that confession was signed, the propaganda rollout that followed this uh, you know, whole event damned Georg as a British agent. And unfortunately... This sealed his fate, because after having remained at the Gestapo headquarters for about a year, uh, the Gestapo headquarters in Berlin, uh, you can actually still visit them today, all the ruins of them. It's called the Topography of Terror. It's near Checkpoint Charlie. I very, very highly recommend a visit there if you're ever in Berlin. It's only about a five-minute walk away from Checkpoint Charlie, and you can see the remains of the basement prison cells that people like Georg were held in there. Um, but uh, after having been transferred away from Berlin there, he was, uh, he was transferred to Sachsenhausen concentration camp just north of Berlin, which you can also still visit today. One of the bunkers is still surviving. Uh, one of the, the prison ha- complexes is still surviving uh, there, and, and you, can, you can go and actually see you know, the place that, that uh, Georg was imprisoned. Um, and he was never given a trial for what he'd done, uh, as the plan was... Uh, for him to basically rot in a concentration camp until uh, Hitler decided it was convenient to stage this Stalin-esque, huge, big pub- public show trial to reap all of the propaganda benefits. But he never got around to it. 
because in Sachsenhausen, Georg was, uh, was kept in isolation for years and years until 1945, although it has to be said, his con- for some reason, his conditions weren't anywhere near as bad as some of the other poor bastards who were there. Obviously, I'm sure you'll, you'll know stuff about the, the, the horrors of, of, of life in a concentra- life and death in a concentration camp, and Georg's conditions weren't, relatively speaking, weren't as bad as, as some of the other, other, other poor lost souls who were in prison there. You know, he was given access to reasonable lodgings and, and, and a decent amount of food and, and, and some other small luxuries that, uh, that other prisoners didn't have, but it didn't save him in the end. Because in 1945, with the Second World War all but lost by the Nazis in April, Hitler ordered poor old Georg to be executed, after all. By this stage, Georg's been transferred to, uh, transferred to Dachau, and on the 5th of April, the orders to liquidate him come through. And four days later, on the 9th, only a few weeks away from the end of the war and the liberation of all of these death camps, Georg Elsa was taken from his cell dragged out in front of an SS sergeant and shot dead. And his body was then burnt in the crematorium, and that was the end of one of the greatest heroes to emerge from Germany throughout this absolutely horrific period of the country's history. This guy was a hero. Make no mistake about this, my friends. He was the the truest embodiment of of idealised heroism. Acting alone risking everything there was to risk. He did what he thought was right to make the world a better place. He sealed his own fate by not destroying the evidence against him, purely so no one else would be blamed. He was subjected to horrific torture and shocking abuse as the Nazis sought to achieve their political purposes with him, and his life ended as just one of the millions of murdered people who had their lives cut tragically short by these people. The reason I chose to share this story today, it's not just because it's obviously an absolute bloody ripper. It's not just because of all of the, the what-ifs and the, oh, the if-onlys that come along with a story like this. It's because Georg Elsa doesn't have the recognition of fame that he deserves as a genuine hero of German history. Now, as I said, much of this is due to Germany's own reluctance to make a big deal uh, out of the positive size of its own history. Even today, the country labours under the weight of the atrocities committed during this period of its own history. But Georg Elsa is incredibly worthy of our attention and our admiration, and his story is one that deserves a bigger place in the history books. Today, if you go to Munich, if you go to where the Keller once stood, obviously it's not there anymore, there is a small plaque on the ground and then a small uh, sort of information panel on one of the walls, because again, his name is not one that is known to history in the way that it should be. It does deserve a bigger place in the history books. And, you know, an hour, you know, half an hour or so on a two-bit history podcast isn't going to change all that much, that's true, but it's something, at least. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Georg Elsa, a red-blooded German hero. I do hope you enjoyed it, and I do hope you will tell people about this story. If you want to link them to this podcast, that's fantastic. But otherwise, just tell them the story yourself, because this bloke's name deserves to be written large in the annals of history. Anyway, that's that for this week, my friends. As usual, the boring announcements. You can jump on uh, halfasthistory.net to find everything you need to know about the show, previous episodes, and links to the Twitter page, at History. 
without an O, wouldn't fit, very annoying, and a Patreon as well if you want to chuck us a few bucks. You, uh, you're certainly welcome to, certainly do very, very much bloody appreciate it, but of course, no obligation whatsoever. If you want to get in touch with me, at half hour, oh sorry, half hour century at gmail.com is the best way to do that. Always looking for great uh, new suggestions for topics for shows and that sort of thing, and I very much do appreciate that. that. And of course, if you want uh, me to send you through some stickers for the show, uh, please just send me through your address and I'll send them to you for free. I understand there's been a hold up with some of them. Um, there is a very good reason for that. It's because I forgot to send them uh, because I'm generally pretty lazy, so I do apologise. They are coming. Uh, I wish, I was thinking, oh, you know, I'll make up some. Really clever excuse about being busy or about having so much on my plate. No, nah, just just forgot. I'll get around to it. But uh, hold tight. If you've sent me an email for uh, some stickers and you haven't got them, uh, I'll send them to you or email me again and then I'll send you you know twice as many. No worries at all. Very keen to hear about you. Uh, how figure out how you came across the show. So uh, if you want to get in touch and let me know uh, sort of how you came across it as well. And if you do so, I might uh, I might send you a couple of extra goodies uh, on uh, you know as well as those stickers. So please do get in touch. It's always great to hear from people like that. And uh, that is just that. We are going to finish things up, of course, with a question posed on um, on Reddit. Reddit historian Poster wants to know, are the Nazis of the early 20th century inspired by the First Order from the new Star Wars film? 